This is Big Sky Lead, a dive into the stories about how government and politics drive the direction of Montana. This podcast is from the reporters of the Montana State News Bureau in Helena, your eyes and ears on state government. It's produced by me, Tom Bridge. Our team brings you their reporting and the stories behind the coverage as the Montana State Legislature meets in an unprecedented session. Seaborn, you had a heck of a day Wednesday. Uh, there were two pretty major news stories on your beat. Um, let's start with the first of what are expected to be many lawsuits in response to legislation passed this session. Uh, and that's this lawsuit over Senate Bill 140, which is actually now a law that eliminates the Judicial Nominating Commission and allows Republican Governor Greg Gianforte to appoint judges uh, when there are vacancies. Can you walk us through what this lawsuit is all about? Yeah, you know, this lawsuit is um, really a lot of the echoes from what we heard during the legislative process. And to kind of to kind of draw this out at the heart of the bill, eliminating the Judicial Nomination Commission wipes away a vetting panel that existed for about 50 years. It came right after the 1972 Constitutional Convention, where delegates in that body were kind of shifting away from the process that had been in place for almost 100 years before that, when the governor uh, would make their own appointments to the state district court or the Supreme Court when a judge vacated the bench. So ultimately, those delegates wrote that the governor would select an appointment from a list of nominees selected by a manner that's allowed in law. And then the next year, 1973, the legislature formed that Judicial Nomination Commission. So the petition filed in the Supreme Court yesterday argued that the framers of that 1972 constitution had intended for an independent body to be the one that forwards nominees to the governor um, when there's a vacancy on the bench. So that filing is backed up with transcripts of debates from the constitutional convention, as well as kind of the literature that went out to voters who would ratify that constitution. And uh, that voter pamphlet said in pretty clear terms that the governor would not have unlimited choices for their pick of judge. You got to remember you know, this is after uh, Montana's political history is pretty well tarnished by the Copper Kings and, and such. So um, that is kind of the heart of the lawsuit um, that's just filed yesterday. So still pretty early in the process. So what is the time hook um, with this lawsuit? You know, right now we are uh, watching their three uh, district court judges who were appointed last year by then Democratic ju- or Governor uh, Steve Bullock. Um, those judges are presiding in Gallatin County, Lewis and Clark County, and uh, Cascade County. One of them was appointed about six months ago and, and told me he's already got a pretty full caseload uh, since he took the bench last year. And so um, the Senate has yet to confirm those appointments um, from Bullock. And so Senator Keith Regeer, he chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee, which kind of um, is the first step in the vetting process before the Senate confirms uh, those appointments. He told me last week that he has actually been holding off on those appointments until this bill passed so that if those appointments weren't confirmed, uh, then that process would start again, but begin at Gianforte rather than that Judicial Nomination Commission. So who filed the lawsuit um, and what's their connection to this situation? 
It's actually a pretty interesting list of plaintiffs in this case. So that includes uh, former Republican Secretary of State Bob Brown. And then Maynard Ellingson was um, one of those 1972 Constitutional Convention delegates. There's a uh, former Democratic lawmaker, Dorothy Bradley, who um, served in that 1973 session and that created the nomination commission. There's also former Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribal chairman Vernon Finley and the Montana League of Women Voters. So um, a lot of uh, a lot of depth to the opposition, I would say, to the plaintiff side of this case. And this lawsuit wasn't a surprise, right? You know, um, the the governor's office didn't answer that question yesterday when I asked them that, but I think there's there's been a lot of talk through that legislative process about. Um, how this kind of strayed from the the intent of the 1972 Constitution. You know, um, the state bar of Montana was one who opposed this bill at every step, at every committee hearing, um, every opportunity to publicly oppose this bill. And they had, they had said that this this could be challenged in, in court based on um, kind of the arguments that that we see in this lawsuit. So I don't think I don't think it's a huge um, surprise to see this, but. Certainly, um, I and I think others were surprised to see it happen so fast. This was less than 24 hours after Gianforte signed Senate Bill 140. Um, so you said that you spoke with the governor's office yesterday. What is Governor Gianforte's reaction to this lawsuit? You know, it's it's pretty much the same as uh, their arguments when they were proponents of the bill um, throughout this process. You know, they... They read that constitution um, probably in its most simple interpretation. Uh, just plainly reads that you know the governor uh, is granted the power to appoint judges when there's a vacancy by a manner provided in law. So when the when if the legislature says that the governor can directly appoint judges, they they say that is within the constitutional bounds. So what are the next steps? You know, um, the next steps is to see if the Supreme Court will will take this case at, at its level or if it uh, will send the case back down to the state district court. Um, there's there's certain um, criteria the case has to meet to, to kind of re- reach the Supreme Court's, um, I guess, uh, doorstep. I mean, there's there's got to be a little bit of... Um, uh, expediency that's required for this. Um, the, you know, the case is, is certainly, um, a high voltage one. I think the, the governor's, um, you know, ability to directly appoint judges for, from a list of any attorney, uh, who applies the, the criteria in Senate bill 140 just requires that anybody who apply have three letters of recommendation, I think from anybody. So, um, the, I think the the powers that that are in place here um, certainly warrant, uh, you know, a, a hard look um, by the judiciary. You know, right now the the Republicans control the legislature and the Republicans control the um, governor's office, and the judiciary is kind of the last remaining um, branch that they they don't necessarily control. And it, it's uh, you know, as the opponent said to this bill throughout the process, it's intended to stay that way, but. I think there's a um, the interpretation that um, you know judges appointed by uh, a governor without any sort of independent body will um, 
sort of slant the judiciary. And so um, that's kind of next is to is to see whether the Supreme Court holds uh, the case at its level or sends it back down for a state district court reading. So that wasn't the only big news you were covering Wednesday. Uh, there was also finally long awaited information on the bill that will implement the recreational cannabis program approved by voters in November 2020. There's been a lot of speculating about what all will be in this bill, all 260 some pages of it. Um, so what are you seeing in the legislation, Seaborn? Yeah, this uh, this bill has been under construction for several months, kind of behind the scenes of the legislature. And yeah, it's a hog. It is 264 pages. And right now, that's important to say that right now it's just a draft. It hasn't been officially introduced yet. Uh, Representative Mike Hopkins is expected to carry it. I think it's all but uh, safe to say that he will carry it. And so right now, um, from looking at it in, in kind of the 30,000 foot view, um, about half of it deals with how recreational uh, marijuana will be implemented. And then the other half um, deals with how, I guess, kind of readjusts medical to fit into the revenue department. That's one of the bigger changes in this um, is that medical marijuana program, which has been under the state health department for the last 15 or so years, um, will be following recreational over to the department of revenue. And so um, there's a, there's a ton to go through this bill at, uh, you know, this draft just dropped yesterday. And so um, it's been pretty interesting peeling through it. Okay. So let's talk about the revenue. Uh, a big part of this whole program is going to be the revenue from the 20% tax on cannabis. Um, where is that money going to go? So there's um, a pretty interesting diagram in the, in a summary that uh, we got leaked a, a day before that um, draft dropped. So basically the, um, the revenues from medical and from recreational will first go into this special revenue account. And at that point, they kind of separate. Medical will uh, essentially pay for itself with its own revenues. And then the recreational tax revenues will go from uh, that special revenue account first to the, uh, the heart fund, which was sort of a priority for Governor Greg Gianforte that uh, that fund aims to address substance abuse treatment and um, addiction uh, support. So then 500,000 of that will go to Indian health services in the state. And then once that heart fund fills up to 6 million, the rest of it pours down into four buckets. And so 88% of that is going to go into the state general fund. That's a huge windfall compared to what uh, voters had passed last year. That original initiative had only 10% of the revenues from recreational going to the state general fund. And what we're talking about here, I mean, we're talking about maybe $50,000 by the time uh, the market's in its fourth year, fourth or fifth year. And so then um, you can kind of do the math out there. 88% to the general fund, 4% will go to uh, state parks, another 4% to state trails, and then uh, the last 4% for non-game wildlife. So, um, you know, talking to Representative Mike Hopkins, he's a Republican from Missoula. Um, he told me yesterday he thinks the, the revenue projections actually underestimated how people will participate in this market. He thinks it's going to be a much bigger boon for the state than um, those projections, which came out of the Bureau of Business and Economic Research at the University of Montana. 
So uh, it, it's apparent uh, based on this bill language that the legislature is departing from what the ballot initiative said. And, and I know we've covered um, the news about um, the constitutionality of the language in the ballot initiative. So we don't necessarily need to dive into that here. But um, who's happy and who's mad about, um, you know, this language reaching the light of day? You know, um, it's certainly interesting to see how it shook out because of that constitutional challenge. I think it gave lawmakers a chance to really um, exercise some freedom into what this uh, what this legislation looks like. So certainly conservation groups um, are not psyched about uh, with the way the funding came out in this. You know, the original ballot initiative language had dedicated uh, 50% of all that tax revenue to conservation projects like public access easements and on. So um, we're going to be at a rally later today on Thursday um, with conservation groups. Montana Wildlife Federation is holding the rally and they, uh, they're going to come out and oppose the bill because of that. And so we'll see what happens. I don't know that um, they're going to be very successful in that just because of um, the way the constitution speaks to the way initiatives can allocate language. But, um, and then we've also seen some, some big questions from the, from the medical industry. So they are going to have the first crack at this, um, when the market opens in January, 2022. And so in the, in the original initiative, that was, um, a year long moratorium on new business license. So, only people who have been in the medical game at the point of October 2021 would have their would be able to access the market. In this draft, we're looking at an 18 month moratorium, so they'll get an early or like a longer crack at this market to try to see how the um, the industry kind of settles itself. But uh, the kind of restrictions on there are already going to be more prohibitive than um, what medical folks are doing right now. So there's uh, there's no, um, outdoor grow in this, um, in this draft, you know, the, everybody's got to grow inside. There's also no branded packaging, which I think kind of falls more in line with what things are at right now, but it certainly, uh, restricts the, the, the ability for companies to stand out from each other. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of some of the things we're seeing at first that are the medical industry is not super psyched about. Do we have any idea what the intent of this moratorium is on new business licenses? Is this a, is this a way to yeah. give a leg up to the existing medical businesses, or is this a way to prevent you know a a floodgate of of businesses trying to open in the state? It's it's definitely both. I think Democrats and Republicans have talked to me about um, kind of a concern that we're going to see just you know. Uh, dispensaries and providers on every corner, uh, you know, communities are going to be flooded with weed. But I think um, it's also acknowledging that the the new um, market should be available to the the medical providers who have kind of survived the last fifteen years of uh, you know tumultuous legislation and co court cases and restrictions and reopenings. And so, um, in theory, everybody who's in the market right now as a medical provider um, is in good standing. And so, to kind of reward those people and and give uh, Montana companies um, a good chance to to get ahead on the market is um, that was an intent that was in the original bill or in the original initiative. And so, um, that's carried over. 
you know, there are certainly some providers who think that that's uh, sort of a farce just because anybody who applies for a business license between now and October, um, you know, you can be in New York or New Mexico or California and apply for a medical license right now. And then you still sneak under that moratorium and you're able to operate. So um, that's something we got to look at with the health department, whether we've seen um, a whole group of new uh, license applicants or um, whether they've, they haven't seen anything like that. It, it, it's going to be interesting to, to figure that out over the next couple months. Okay, so we've we've gotten into the nuts and bolts of the revenue and the the business side of things. Let's dive into um, what the bill tells us about how the program will look. Um, do we know how it's going to look on the ground? You know, it's uh, it's. I think it's one of those things that's going to become um, a big fight over what regulations should look like. I, I know we're, we're talking about other States when we look to how Montana should operate. Um, for example, one of the changes that happened, uh, in this draft as opposed to the initiative was counties now, um, are required to, or get the opportunity to allow, uh, marijuana businesses to come in while in the initiative, it was kind of inversely stated that, um, counties had the opportunity to say, we don't want cannabis in our county, in our local jurisdiction. And so, um, that is one thing that I think is going to be debated a lot. It seems to go kind of against the intent of the initiative itself, which passed by 57%. That's, that's more than most Republicans who won statewide office got. And so we'll, uh, we're going to find, um, a lot of reasons to, to fight over this bill, I think. As, as we progress. But one thing I think most people are going to be, um, you know, really excited about is the tribes. Um, each tribal government will receive one uh, cannabis business license to operate um, just outside within 25 air miles of the reservation boundaries. Uh, they can't um, sell or grow or cultivate marijuana on the reservation because of their affiliation with the federal government. It's still a federally illegal drug. Um, and so we're looking for um, some opportunity to allow the tribes access to this new commerce. And so that's one that I know um, one Republican lawmaker has been working on for a um, couple months now. And um, I'll be interested to see if there's any changes to that. Another thing that's in the bill is this cashless uh, pay system. So as it stands now, marijuana is uh, because it's federally illegal can't uh, use the banks to finance their operations. You can't get a loan. You can't um, keep any of your um, accounts at a bank. So it's entirely a cash system. And so if the idea is that the state will sign up with a third party to sort of have these prepaid uh, debit cards or, you know, payment cards, um, that's going to be interesting to see just because I don't necessarily know if um, that's going to be a restrictive measure that kind of hinders the market. You know, if so much of this revenue is based on tourism, which is one of Montana's biggest industries right now, um, you know, I don't know how many tourists in the state are going to be, uh, who are here for three days are going to sign up for a card that then they can buy marijuana and then, um, take part in the, in the industry. And so, um, a lot of things that weren't in the, in the initiative that people haven't thought about yet. 
So um, what sort of regulations are outlined in the bill um, that recreational cannabis users will have to abide by? I mean, it's not just going to be a Wild West free-for-all, is it? Certainly not. I think um, in a lot of ways, it's uh, it's not going to be seen as a socially acceptable um, substance like alcohol. You know, the, the one thing that really stood out to me was um, there's a uh, provision if you're driving – with cannabis in your car, it's got to be in a locked box, um, either in the trunk or in the back seat, or as like basically far from reach as possible. That's, um, that's one thing that, uh, certainly wasn't in the initiative and, um, seems to speak to this priority. Uh, Republicans said at the beginning of the session that one of their, um, you know, biggest points in, in passing this implementation was just safety, safety, safety. And so that, uh, the DUI, um, numbers they've seen from other states after legalization passed, I think really um, caused some consternation among uh, Republican lawmakers. And so uh, this is this is sort of a measure to um, to prevent that at, at any level possible. And that's um, that's one thing I think people are going to be paying attention to. Certainly one thing um, or another thing people have uh, gotten a little cranky about is the uh, no home grows for, uh, I guess, citizens, people who aren't actually tied to the business. Um, I think that was, that was something that was in the, uh, recreational bill or the initiative that passed and and became legal on January one of this year. So as it stands right now, people, people are able to, um, possess up to an ounce. You can travel with it. You can, you can grow up to four plants. And that was, uh, that would, that'd be something that would kind of be reversed, um, as one of those things that went into into effect early after legalization passed. So all of these regulations that we're talking about don't actually exist on the books yet. Um, but the ballot initiative made possession um, legal on January 1st. So in the interim, before there's actually a law on the books, um, can you maybe remind people what is legal and what regulations are out there right now? Yeah, it's um, you know, kind of like I said, it's it's legal to uh, to possess up to an ounce. Uh, I think you can have uh, a few grams of the concentrates, but um, the kind of the strange thing is you can't uh, actually go buy it anywhere at any um, medical provider or dispensary that's open right now. So, in effect, the the regulations that were um, or not the regulations, but kind of the allowances that were. Um, granted on January 1 of this year through that initiative, essentially mean that law, law enforcement is going to turn a blind eye to the low-level uh, marijuana market for the time being while the legislature sets up um, its recreational program. And so, um, you know, people who casually smoke marijuana uh, or ingest it in any way um, right now is essentially decriminalized by by most measures. Um, you you touched on it a little bit. Does the bill have any language that increases um, law enforcement's ability to crack down on the already existing black market? But once there's a legal market, um, does it give law enforcement any more power or, or resources to um, crack down on you know existing black market uh, marijuana sales once you know we have stores open and people can, you know, buy it from these businesses? That's something I uh, haven't found 
yet in this bill as I continue to look through it. It's like I said, it's a, it's a big bill. It's a hog to, to look at it. And we've had uh, a little less than 24 hours to go through it. And so I think certainly um, there was talk of some early on in, about some funding for MHP to um, maintain their drug interdiction uh, units. And so um, any black market marijuana that uh, comes crossing through the state uh, certainly isn't going to have a free pass just because of this. And um, I know there is uh, some additional, um, I guess, resources granted to law enforcement for uh, things like oral swabs and blood samples to to try to crack down on those marijuana DUIs. Um, that's certainly something we're going to be looking for. And I think uh, that's going to be a big part of the conversation as we move forward with Republicans uh, so focused on safety. While the marijuana bill might win for the longest piece of legislation so far this session, Sam, you covered a bill that might be one of the more complicated, uh, and that's legislation that gets into what's called takings. This has been kind of a sleeper bill that could have huge impacts on the state. Sam, can you maybe start by explaining just what the bill um, does and what exactly takings are? Uh, yeah, sure. It's a it's a pretty broad concept, but it's it's kind of similar to the idea of eminent domain, where the government has the authority to take private property um, if it's putting it to some kind of necessary public use. Um, and when it takes property, uh, you know, whether it's a local government, state government or whatever, um, you know, they typically have to reimburse the private property owner for the fair market value of that. Um, this concept of regulatory takings kind of kind of uses that idea and applies it um, across the board to to a much broader kind of spectrum of government actions. Um, so with regulatory takings, you know, you're looking at, um, you know, if you, if you're a government that is regulating pollution, for instance, and the cost of, um, of complying with those regulations, um, you know, reaches a certain threshold under this proposal, um, that company could essentially bill the government for, that cost and the government would be required to pay that out. Um, I guess kind of loosely, that's, that's essentially what the, the idea is. Okay. So now that we understand what the bill does a little bit, um, it seems like this could have a pretty huge effect on the state financially, right? Yeah. So the state does a lot of things, um, to regulate, um, private property rights. Um, you know, the pollution example is just one. Um, but I mean, pretty much anything it does to, to regulate any, any industry or, or action, um, you know, it could come with a potential cost. Um, and then, you know, essentially this bill would put the state government on the, on the hook for those costs if they exceed 25% of the value of the business. Um, so, I mean, if you're a, you know, going back to the polluter example, if you're a, you know, a coal-fired power plant, um, you know, it would it would take a pretty hefty amount of regulation to hit that 25% level. Um, but I mean, the idea is that this would create a venue for companies to at least make that argument in court. Um, so what opponents of the bill worry about, at least in in part, is that you know there's just going to be a a ton of lawsuits being filed against the state. And that's going to be kind of one area where there's going to be a significant 
impact uh, fiscally is just having to defend and, and deal with all these lawsuits where you have private entities alleging that they've been devalued by 25% and trying to figure out, you know, kind of what the actual number was and how much of it you can attribute to the regulation. Is, is is any of the part of the bill retroactive? Yeah, so that's um that, that's a big piece of of how expansive this would be. You know, I mean, obviously there's a ton of regulations on the books in Montana already. Um and the bill sponsor, uh, Senator Steve Fitzpatrick, a Republican from Great Falls. I mean, he he told me that it's not retroactive. He said the same in committee. Um, and he points to language in the bill stating that this would only apply to state actions initiated um, after the passage of the bill. Um, and it's a little bit unclear that that language is a bit unusual uh, for legislation. And, um, and again, opponents have pointed to that and said that that's basically just, um, you know, that could just apply to enforcement actions. So even if even if you're not creating a new regulation, you're enforcing a regulation after the effective date. Um, so those those enforcement actions would still be kind of covered under this, even if it's, you know, an, an existing regulation that's been on the books for decades. So who are the opponents and do they have other concerns that you haven't mentioned? Um, so the opponents to this, I mean, this is, um, well, this has been one that's really supported by, um, you know, the business community and, um, you know, a lot of groups like uh, the Montana Chamber of Commerce, the Federation of Independent Businesses, um, and, and some, you know, more kind of libertarian conservative groups. Um, opponents um, are, you know, Mostly liberal-leaning um, groups like the Public Interest Research Group, Ford Montana came out in opposition. But you have a lot of environmental and wildlife interest groups, um, Montana Wildlife Association, Audubon, uh, the Montana Environmental Information Center. Um, and they're, they're really deeply concerned about the effects that this would have on environmental regulations um, because it... The bill carves out an exemption for local governments um, that are enforcing regulations. Um, I think the quote is uh, that address documented public health and safety impacts. Um, but there's no such uh, language referring to state regulations. So, so under this bill, as written right now, um, you know, there's a there's a lot of you know, environmental regulations, you know, um, such as mining regulations, uh, um, the amount of permits that are given out each year for elk, um, you know, envir environmental groups have, have pointed to that as, as one instance where um, an outfitter business might argue that his business was devalued by 25% because of, you know, the number of permits that were allocated in a certain hunting district. Um, so you get into you know, potentially um, just a, a vast range of environmental areas where where this could have some pretty far-reaching impacts. Who's showing up um, and speaking in support of the bill? Um, yeah, so that's it's a lot of those uh, pro-business groups, um, and uh, you know, the Montana Chamber of Commerce, like I said, has backed it. Um, 
A group called uh, United Property Owners of Montana have have spoken a couple times in favor of this bill, um, and the uh, the lobbyist representing that group um, framed it kind of as um, an instance where you're taking the costs of regulation um, that are benefiting the public. And, um, you know, essentially what this bill is doing is, is saying, well, if the public is benefiting from these regulations, then they should also be picking up some of the costs, um, which, uh, which was how he framed. It. And then, you know, the opponents to that, that line of argument will point to, um, you know, regulations kind of, uh, uh, in large part, often trying to correct the cost that's already being passed off to the public and putting that back on the shoulders of um, private business. Um, so what are Fitzpatrick's motivations for bringing the bill? Um, so Fitzpatrick is, is bringing a bill that's been that's popped up in different forms in several legislative sessions over the past decade. Um, he cites a state Supreme Court ruling that found that a group of game farms um, essentially didn't have the ability to demand uh, that the government compensate them for a law that um, essentially took away their their business model. Um, it was a ballot initiative that made it illegal for people to, uh, or for the game farms to charge people to come onto their property and shoot game. Um, they argued that that was a regulatory takings um, and that they were entitled to, um, you know, some amount of money to, to make them whole again after the government, um, you know, essentially devalued their business with that with that law um the supreme court ruled otherwise and um and so fitzpatrick pointed to that as, as essentially um you know a job for the legislature to um to correct that ruling um and and give businesses a little bit more certainty that the government couldn't just come in and pass regulations that essentially strip them of their livelihood <laughs> Do we have any idea what's happened in other states that have done similar to what this bill proposes? Yeah, that's that's pretty hard to capture. Um, I I wasn't able to find any other states that have enacted things similar. Um, again, opponents uh, like the Montana Environmental Information Center have pointed to the fact that or have said that there's no other states that have anything similar in place. Um, couple of West Coast states, Oregon and Washington, tried this uh, or tried a similar idea um, a while back. Um, it failed to pass as a ballot initiative in Washington. Um, but in previous years, Montana has tried to estimate the potential costs of this type of legislation by looking at uh, Washington's failed ballot initiative and some estimates that the state had done, um, you know, basically the previous administration's uh, budget office found that there's a ramp, you know, potentially in excess of $600 million um, over six years would be the cost of, uh, of this legislation. But really, I mean, it's, it's pretty wide reaching potentially. So, it, it, you know, even in, in the fiscal note for, uh, for this year's bill, um, the budget office essentially didn't really take a stab at even trying to estimate the potential cost. Uh, before we leave, uh, could you just remind people where this bill is at in the legislative process? Yeah, so uh, so this bill passed um, kind of during that uh, transmittal crunch um, in uh, late 
February. And uh, so it got out of the Senate on a party line vote, and it's currently in the House uh, before the House Business and Labor Committee. Thanks, Sam. Uh, that's been another episode of Big Sky Lead. If you want to keep hearing this, uh, make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts are found. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.